For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Ari Fullman, the award-winning motion picture director and the creative force behind Where is Anne Frank? Adiba Nelson shares a rarely discussed way that overturning Roe v. Wade endangers the lives of women and girls. Betsy Cruz Craig tells about portraying political icon Molly Ivins on stage. And comedian Colin Quinn takes a somewhat cynical look at the history of all 50 United States with Overstated. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. October 22, 2022, wasn't the first or last time that I shed tears for Anne Frank. It was because of the announcement that her childhood friend, Hannah Pick Gossler, whom Anne wrote about and nicknamed Hannah Lee, died in Jerusalem at age 93. The girls were friends before they were sent to the death camps, and they saw each other while they were imprisoned. Hannah was liberated after 14 months in Bergen-Belsen. It was only a few weeks after Anne Frank had perished. It startled me to realize that, in another version of history, Anne Frank could potentially have survived, perhaps now living a quiet, happy life in a world where her teenage diary would forever remain private. Where is Anne Frank is a new telling of Anne's story, an animated film that uses a unique idea to connect it with the contemporary world. What if Kitty the imaginary friend that Anne created in her diary, could manifest herself in modern-day Amsterdam as a teenage girl, as if the diary of Anne Frank itself came to life. This strange and dreamlike idea comes from Ari Fullman, an Israeli-born filmmaker who received global attention for his last animated film, Waltz with Bashir, in 2008. It took Fullman and his team almost nine years to create the cinematic masterpiece where is Anne Frank? On Sunday, November 6th, the Arizona Center for Judaic Studies will host a free screening of the film at the Loft Cinema, with Ari Fullman in attendance for a Q&A. I spoke with Fullman this week and learned that for someone born in Israel, with parents who survived the Holocaust, reading the diary of Anne Frank in school is very different than it is for most Americans. The stories that I grew up on were in many ways tougher, because I think one of the reasons the Anne Frank Diary was so successful, besides the fact that she was a genius writer, is the fact that it has no really horror or horrific stories of uh, starvation from the ghetto or execution in the camps. It's a fantastic account of coming of age in captivity of a brilliant girl. I think this is why I don't have a recollection of, of it, reading it at the age of 14, but 10 years ago when I was offered to make the movie and I read it and my younger daughter was 14, I was stunned by the quality of writing of a 13 and 12-year-old girl. This is something you cannot acknowledge as a kid. It's something that your film captures, though, in a beautiful way by letting us get to know Anne Frank. And the device, the idea that you had of letting the diary itself become a character in the story was brilliant. 
when you begin to explain this film to people, how do you convey the idea of the living diary known as Kitty to them in, in, a, in an economy of words? I was looking for a new dimension of telling the, the same story. I had this very strong feeling that the solution is in the text. It's in the diary. So I was reading the diary every day, and I think after 50 times of reading the same page where Anne Frank describes her imaginary friend Kitty, and I saw a full description of Kitty, facial expressions, her lips, her eyes, the way she walks, everything is there. We just started drawing her in the studio, and once Kitty was on the screens, it was, it was obvious that she's going to be the storyteller of the entire film. We know what Anne and Margot and her family looked like, Yet your film brings them to life in such a beautiful and stylized way. Clean design and clean lines. Do you want to say a few words about Lena Guberman and, and her contribution to this film? Well, Lena Guberman is, is a great designer. There is something in her line which is very emotional immediately. It's like music, you know. Some musicians, they get two, three chords and, and they, are, they get straight into your heart. Same with Lena's lines. She put a huge effort in each and every character design in this movie. First, she sculptured them. Then we brought a still photographer to shoot the sculptures from 150 different positions, just facial expressions. Then she copied it back to 2D by pencil. Only this process took nearly a year for 12 leading characters in the movie. So it was a very long process. There's a scene in the film where Anne wants to talk to her sister Margot, and Margot's laying in bed with her back to Anne, and the way Anne touches her back is so compassionate and so sisterly. Did that emerge through drawing, or were you working with any sort of actors as models? Usually I work with actors as models. I shoot all my films with actors, and they perform for the animators, which is very unique. I don't know anyone else who's doing it. But this specific scene came in late because I thought that it's a weak point in the movie that we don't see more than it, like in the diary of the relationship between the two sisters. So it was just a supreme animator I had that did it. I'd also like to compliment you on the sound design, the wonderful music, some of it very contemporary in style, yet absolutely appropriate to the scenes. And another thing, the, the sharpness of the sound effects, the sound of glass breaking in that yeah. movie is truly, truly startling. Just great clarity and wonderful storytelling there. Well, it's Kano, and she's the composer. I first heard her music in Where the Wild Things Are, the film by Spike Jones. I just love and adore. And I was waiting for the day I could offer her a project of mine. So I'm so happy she was in and. It's ironic to say, but lucky enough, we had the pandemic. So instead of writing 11 tracks in one song, she was closed at home for all period of, 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 write, of composing. So we had 27 tracks in four songs. The reality and the pureness of the teenage girl dialogue is also something. You mentioned that you're a father. I would like to know if you felt like you captured the way that a girl Anne's age, or Kitty's age in a way, I suppose, how they would communicate and how they would express themselves? Well, my younger daughter, she grew up in the process of making this movie. She was involved in each and every decision of, 
of character writing in the script and later on in the design. So she was a massive help. There's a very important question that Anne asks her older sister when she first receives her diary as a gift. And she says, do you keep a diary? And Margot says, yes. And Anne says, who are you writing to? And they discuss that topic, and that is how Kitty is created. I'd like to ask you the same question about your film, Where's Anne Frank? Can you tell me, Ari, who were you writing to? Well, this film it was written, directed, produced for children starting the age of 10, anywhere. I think uh, with girls even younger, because they mature younger. Any aspect of this film is thought about for them. I still think that in a few years from now, when there won't be any Holocaust survivors among us anymore, the point of view of this story is going to be so far away, it's going to be like a satellite point of view. And emotionally-wise, children will not be able to connect. So I was trying to find a new way to tell the story. The Arizona Center for Judaic Studies presents Ari Fulman and his film Where is Anne Frank at the Loft Cinema on Sunday, November 6th, with a reception at 9.30 a.m. The event is free, but online registration is required. You can find more information and watch the trailer for the film on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Next, Adiba Nelson has her own story to tell in reaction to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. This essay contains some frank language about reproductive rights. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. Adiba Nelson is an independent contributor to the show, and her commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona Public Media. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. My daughter, the beautiful and effervescent Miss E, turned 13 years old in May. I wasn't home for her birthday this year, but we were able to FaceTime. I studied her sweet face and bright smile through my phone screen and marveled at how much she'd grown and how fast the time had gone by. In 13 short years, she went from the child doctors weren't sure would ever talk to the teenager saying, right there, in the most sarcastic teenage way when I'm looking for my sunglasses. E has cerebral palsy and bilateral schizencephaly. And though her speech can be a bit garbled and her voice deep and raspy, she always gets her point across. I understand her. Many do not and attempt to make decisions for her. This, in particular, is why the overturning of Roe v. Wade has brought a whole new kind of fear to my mothering journey with this beautiful, black, disabled girl child of mine things outside her control have automatically thrust her into the highest risk category for sexual assault. Like any mother, I pray that this never comes to pass. But if it does, and she becomes pregnant, I fear that she will be forced to carry her pregnancy to term, even if she doesn't want to. According to the National Center on Violence Against Women in the Black Community, one in four Black girls will be sexually assaulted before age 18. Among students, 11% of black girls in a national high school sample reported having been raped. Pair those numbers with the nauseating and heartbreaking statistics on sexual violence against disabled people. Disability and Risk of Recent Sexual Violence in the United States is a 2016 study published in the American Journal of Public Health. 
it found that nearly 40% of female rape victims have a disability at the time they are raped. The Bureau of Justice Statistics reports that rapes or sexual assaults against persons with disabilities were nearly half as likely to report to the police as non-disabled people. Roe v. Wade has left the most vulnerable among us in the most unforgiving and uncompromising position. I have not fully wrapped my head around all the ramifications of overturning Roe v. Wade. I know this opens the door to states prohibiting access to contraceptive care. For my daughter, this means losing access to Nexplanon, the birth control we use to keep her hormone levels in check. When her hormone levels rise, when she gets her period, it alters the electricity in her brain and she gets cluster seizures. When she gets cluster seizures, she stops breathing. The only way to stop the seizures is to administer a rescue medication, which makes her sleep for the next five to seven hours. For two days out of every month, this was our nightmare before beginning Nexplanon. However, with the use of this critical contraceptive, she has not had a single seizure. I don't think I need to explain how much weight access to this contraceptive holds in our family. In addition to worrying about her access to much-needed contraceptive care, I've also been preoccupied with making her practice saying no as loud as she can. This is difficult for a semi-verbal child who weighs 52 pounds and struggles with breath planning for communication. I've been preoccupied with making her practice pushing my encroaching hand away as fast and hard as she can. This is difficult for a child with one fully functioning arm and gross motor and motor planning difficulties. I've also been somewhat preoccupied with studying the buttons in the sexuality section of her communication device. I do this to make sure it has all the phrases she would need to not only tell someone to leave her alone, but also to tell someone if she was assaulted. Because according to the Justice Department, people with disabilities are sexually assaulted at a rate of seven times higher than a person with no disabilities. The Justice Department also suggests police and prosecutors are reluctant to take sexual assault cases involving a person with a disability because they are harder to win in court. The overturning of Roe has made it clear that under Arizona state law, she will have to live with the possible ramifications like pregnancy of her abuser's actions if that pregnancy is not detected by 15 weeks. And these are just the ramifications of Roe v. Wade as it pertains to abortion, disability, contraception, and sexual assault. I have yet to see financial care for pregnant, disabled individuals and their children brought to the table. I doubt those making decisions about women's reproductive health and our right to safe abortions have considered any of the things that I have been forced to think about. I am the parent of one of the most at-risk segments of people in this country. And like many Black parents, I am once again tasked with teaching my child how to save her own life when the government refuses to acknowledge her existence and the dangers that come with it. You can read this essay in full on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. And you can find more Adiba Nelson at thefullnelson.net.
There have been times, Texas, when I have run from you. I wanted to go somewhere where people talked about something besides the weather and football. I went from New York to Denver to Boston to Paris, the one in France, and I learned that folks everywhere mostly talk about the weather and football. So I ducked under the moon shadow and I came back to Texas. Continuing on my life's goal of working for every news operation in my sovereign state, I took a job with the Dallas Times-Herald. They promised I could write whatever I wanted. Here's what happened. I was writing about Jim Collins, a Republican congressman from Dallas, who was reaching such fresh heights of human stupidity that I wrote, If his IQ slips any lower, we'll have to water him twice a day. The paper got some phone calls. So they slapped up billboards saying, Molly Ivins can't say that, can she? To support me and the First Amendment. <laughs> I like to think James Madison would have been proud. You see, Texas ain't all what people think it is. Just mostly. Personally, I always root for the Speaker of the Texas House to go down. I do not wish him ill. It's just a matter of political tradition. Six out of the last seven House speakers have been indicted for one thing or another, uh, the exception being the one who was shot to death by his wife. She was indicted, but not convicted, because in Texas we recognize public service when we see it. The deceased was a Democrat, as was every Texas speaker until recently. You see, Republicans are a fairly new phenomena, because in the old days, children... There were no Republicans in Texas. Young people used to call home from college to report to their parents when they'd actually met one. All we had were conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats. Back in the day, folks would bring Granny and the kids, lay out a picnic, and settle down to hear a Democrat explain in plain words the wrongs of Jim Crow, of McCarthyism, of communism, of the oil companies, and gutless politicians. And then... We became waterlogged with Republicans. Hanukkah LBJ doing the right thing on civil rights. <laughs> then we lost the South for three generations and counting. It's called backlash. From the late 1960s and continuing until her death in early 2007, journalist Molly Ivins provided a deep and enlightened perspective on American politics. Mostly working in her adopted home state of Texas, she used her sharp eye and her rapier wit to skewer tone-deaf politicians and anti-democratic policies. Her colorful and frequently off-color story is dramatized in Red Hot Patriot, the kick-ass wit of Molly Ivins. It's on stage now at the Invisible Theater in Tucson, and star Betsy Cruz Craig will tell us more. Reading Molly's work was surprising to me because of the performer in her, and she definitely cultivated that good old girl from Texas, kind of a, a, an exterior. So when I got into reading her books and mining the gold that is in there, the depth of her intelligence and knowledge about the political scene and her ability to survey and observe it was incredible to me. Three-time Pulitzer Prize nominee and rightly so. Those those books aren't easy to read, um, which makes them wonderful to read. It's like a treasure trove of incredibly adept political observation, which I had no idea how incredibly intelligent she was, you know, because she puts on this this facade, right? 
There's no wool in front of her eyes. And she sees everything. There's a piece in the in the play where Molly says, you know, I wish I could say that I write and do these things because I can't help myself, but really they're just back talk I wish I'd said to my father. The French call it Esprit de l'Escalier, that brilliant singer you think are just a little too late. There is such a tendency to be tribalized in our political discourse today, and you see it in journalists and everyone else. That's the thing that I think about Molly Ivins, is that she was an independent thinker. If she saw a problem amidst her party, the Democratic Party, she would call it out as fast as she would call out anything else. Absolutely. Part of what I've taken away from you know, the research, and we all know this, that, and she comments on it, that politics is not about right and left. It's about up and down. It's just shocking to me how little things have changed from when she was writing about this in the, well, all through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, but, you know, 2006, 2007. I mean, it's really interesting. She was writing about John Kerry and George W., when they were running against each other and she was making a speech that she gave at Tulane talking about how this was the first election that was really going to be shaped and directed by the internet. It's funny to think of what she would have been like in the Twitter verse, the the woman who was the queen of economy of language, cutting through with a rapier wit. She would have been amazing on Twitter. Well, I mean, Twitter before Elon Musk, maybe, but you know what I'm saying? Well, what does this play really want to say about Molly Ivins? I think more than anything, it points out how incredibly important it is to take her seriously. I think there are a lot of people who need to rediscover her language, her observations. We get to see the history of Molly in this piece. We get to hear about her very complicated relationship with her father, which I think definitely shaped a lot of who she was and some of the fire that that constantly burned under the person that she was. They had an antagonistic relationship. But more than anything, this is someone who was on the level of, of Mark Twain. She used comedy. She used political commentary to skewer not only you know, on both sides of the aisle, it was a an equalizing technique that she had, you know, that could cut through the junk. And I think that she was absolutely committed to being a citizen, to making change happen the best way she could. So here's a quick line from 1993 that Molly wrote that would still be a valid comment today. And it is, let me start this discussion by pointing out that I am not anti-gun. I'm pro-knife. Consider the merits of the knife. (laughs) Well, and she says it was like physical education. Everybody would be be in better shape because you'd have to run after someone with a knife if you're trying to kill them. I mean, she was very vocal about gun control. One of the props I have on stage is an article that she wrote after Roe v. Wade was passed. It's emotional for me because I think about how she would feel about Dobbs. You know, it's just heartbreaking. Invisible theater always tries to rise to the occasion and provide more than just an artistic experience, but also to somehow reach out in the community. Is there a component of this uh, production that you want to share? Absolutely. We have two post-show discussions, uh, one with Ann Brown, 
on November 3rd and one with Mark Kimball on November 9th. Both of them journalists, editors in their own right. And I think those talkbacks will be really interesting. Like I said, can Molly Ivins say that? Can she? You know, she was somebody who there were many, many papers. She was syndicated at the height of her popularity in between, I think, 300 and 400 papers. And sometimes they were buying her column and not running it, which I think is really interesting because they were frightened of what she was saying. She worked on 60 Minutes for a brief period of time. when She did not like it at all because she didn't feel that she was taken seriously, that the networks didn't really understand where she was coming from, that they were trying to make her into something that she definitely was not. Betsy Cruz Craig stars in Red Hot Patriot, the kick-ass wit of Molly Ivins, at the Invisible Theater through November 13th. Ticket information and details of Invisible Theater's COVID protocols are available at invisibletheater.com. You might remember him from MTV, but comedian and author Colin Quinn is most famous for his time as a leading writer and performer on Saturday Night Live from 1995 to 2000. That included anchoring the Weekend Update desk. His dry brand of satire comes from a very down-to-earth, working-class point of view. Quinn's latest release is a history book of sorts called Overstated. It explores the identities and idiosyncrasies of each of the 50 states, and no target is safe from ridicule. Colin Quinn will perform on November 10th at the Rialto Theater in Tucson. It's such an unwieldy country lately that it just feels like we got to start really analyzing it. You know what I mean? Because it's just unwieldy. It's big, you know, it's out of control, and nobody seems to be able to get a handle on it. And we've got to try to do something. It's so weird because whenever in history you see something happen, you go, how could people there not have seen what was going on and done something? Because nobody has an idea. Nobody has solutions for any problems. That's one of the problems. Right, but we love to talk about the problems. Yes, exactly. And that seems to make us more divisive than ever in a lot of ways. Yeah. You look back into the history of the states, and and my editor made a joke about you didn't go the easy way and go alphabetical. Instead, you chose to go chronological. It makes more sense to me. You know, you have to do things in order so you can understand them, too. You know what I mean? So it's like you look at the way the country kind of came about. It's uh, so interesting to watch all these places develop, and, and it almost makes sense why they are the way they are. Like the book started to make sense to me by the end. I was like, oh, now I understand. You know, it didn't help. Once again, no solution. Well, I think as a native New Yorker, Colin, you have an affinity for that region and for New England and really getting down into the weeds. I think what you do is you give states kind of a personality. You call them out for their features. And a state like Maine, for instance, gets uh, a portrayal from you that's a little different than, say, Stephen King. Yeah. I mean, I just call them the New England of New England, basically, because I feel like everybody has that state that where they're supposed to uh, put everybody in their place. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're in charge of their region. Uh, kind of inscrutable yeah. because they they have three sides. They have three borders to themselves. I mean, in terms of being That's connected right. to the U.S. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even realize that, by the way. I wish I had known that when I was writing the book. <laughs> well, give me a call next time. I will. So they got the Atlantic. They got Canada. But what's the third side? I'm envisioning them as only connected to the U.S. via their southern border. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Interesting, right. Have you I, seen I, a I map lately? I, I know. I never think visually. That's my problem. <laughs> I only think verbally. 
<laughs> well, one funny example of your interest in sports and how you mix it into the book, Overstated, <laughs> is when you talk about my home state of Texas, and you oh, yeah. just suddenly jump right into the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and then you say, this left a black mark on the state for eight years yeah. until head coach Tom Landry came along. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I didn't realize the Cowboys yeah. were such a cleansing agent. They really, they really were. I mean, it's so funny to say that because I was just thinking about JFK today and how it really, 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 I don't know if it was coincidental or it really is one of those things. But Dallas rebranded with the Cowboys in the early 70s were which is my age, we all watch the Cowboys. And a lot of people hated them. Some people loved them. But every team had personality. Like, every team had a coach that you knew and their own personality. But nobody had personality like the Cowboys. Out here in Arizona, you talk about the gunfighter mentality. And as we head here into the midterms, we certainly are seeing signs of that being true. You know, that there are definitely, <laughs> there are definitely some gunfighters who are, uh, who are roaming the streets. Yeah. New Mexico is quiet. And Arizona is just rambunctious. It all started like 2007 or something. Suddenly Arizona started like screaming and kicking and yelling. It's really amazing to watch like a state change. But Arizona, I don't know where they get this uh, extroverted personality. It just feels like it came out of nowhere. It's like a ant mound under a magnifying glass. The heat is so intense here <laughs> that it causes activity even if the activity is not in a positive direction. That's funny. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Colin Quinn brings his stand-up to Tucson on Thursday, November 10th at the Rialto Theater. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.